Welcome to Fishing Forward, a podcast inspired by fishermen for fishermen that focuses on health, safety, and staying ship shape in the commercial fishing industry. Fishing Forward is brought to you by the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety and by the Coastal Roots Radio Team at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. I'm your co-host, Hannah Harrison. And I'm Phil Loring. In this podcast, we're exploring how fishermen can be thought of as professional fishing athletes. That is that the nature of their work demands the same high level of mental focus, training, and physical acuity that one might expect from a professional sports athlete. Throughout this series, we're using that lens to understand the many facets of fishermen's minds, bodies, and well-being, and we're digging deep into tough questions around issues that are critical to the fishing industry. In this episode, we're talking about something well-known to professional fishing athletes, pain. From our ergonomics episodes, we know that commercial fishing demands a lot of movements that can create stress on a person's body, and the long hours and repetitive motion of fishing jobs can result in injury and sometimes pain. In those episodes, we talked about ways that fishermen can avoid injury and chronic pain. But pain is a complex topic because it can also manifest in ways that are more difficult to address than, say, with some ibuprofen. Commercial fishing lifestyles are sometimes stressful lonely, and characterized by periods of bust and boom. These factors can create psychological pain or pain of the heart and mind. We're going to tackle these issues over the course of two episodes. In this part, part one, we'll hear from a researcher who lives and works in a fishing community and has studied how pain in the commercial fishing industry can lead to some serious outcomes. Then in part two, we'll hear from a commercial fisherman turned priest about how he sees the devastating outcomes of pain affecting his community. A quick content warning for our listeners. In this episode, we discuss substance use and substance use disorders, and there are some mentions of accidental death and suicide. My name's Scott Fulmer. My title is that I'm an ergonomics project manager at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, but really that means that I'm grant-funded to do research and the research that I've been doing for the last 10 years has been with lobstermen up in the Northeast section of the US where the lobsters are. I have, I think, learned a lot simply by talking directly with lobstermen, a couple hundred over the course of that time about pain and injury and how to prevent it. Scott lives in Gloucester, Mass a place that inspired him to investigate issues of health in the fishing community. He sees his work as a part of his obligation to care for the people and other fishers around him. When I learned about, you know, how to prevent pain and injury through ergonomics at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, it just seemed obvious to me that the commercial fishing industry was a something that I should look at, not only because it's known to be dangerous, but also because it's my community and I want to be a part of it in a way that's meaningful. So that's what led me to get involved in this type of research. I started my conversation with Scott by talking about physical pain in the fishing industry, and he offered some examples from his work with lobstermen. In in my specific study about lobstermen, I found that only 20% of the population of, of the people that I interviewed, which is reasonably statistically significant of the entire population, only 20% did not experience pain. 
so that's that's pretty much everybody, right? I mean, we're talking about a huge proportion of people who are out there working in pain. The profile of where they're experiencing pain has a lot to do with the type of work that they're doing. So you can see, you can actually see a greater proportion of types of injuries that sort of line up with, you know, how they're using their bodies while while they're working. So there, there's a lot of right shoulder injuries, for example, rather than um, right or left equivalent, if you follow what I'm saying. So, and that's because of the usage of the right shoulder to pull in traps. Having been out on lobster boats myself, I can see how pulling these traps up day after day would cause this kind of pain. You know, for our listeners, pulling up a set of traps is kind of like pulling up a string of Christmas lights out of the water, but each light weighs somewhere between uh, 40 and 60 pounds, depending on what's in it. You know, this also reminds me of episodes one and two of this podcast, where we talked about ergonomics and how many fishermen end up with wrist, elbow, and shoulder injuries due to the repetitive stress of the job. Yeah, I had the same thought that this is really what we've talked about earlier in these podcast series. But with so many fishermen working in pain, I think it's also important to consider the systemic barriers that fishermen face in trying to treat that pain. Scott points out that for some fishermen, seeking relief for pain caused by their fishing activities is kind of a no-win situation. A person like me, maybe you, I don't know what what your experience is. If I have to get treatment somehow, I have a sick day. I can take a sick day and I can go get treatment for something that I have. I can go see the doctor. The doctor sets up an appointment. The whole system is kind of set up to work that way. I mean, it doesn't, it's not necessarily great for me, but there are a lot of challenges in just that process for a fisherman, not the least of which is that like for the lobstermen anyway, their gear is out in the water all the time. And so if they want to take time off, they can't just relax or, you know, and set their mind away from the fact that they have their entire livelihood out on the water. They can't just leave it alone. It's got to be maintained. And if they can't do it for an extended period of time, if they're getting treatment for something, they have to find somebody who's going to be able to do their work with their boat and all their equipment for them, which is not necessarily an easy and comfortable thing to do. So there's all those things just in the point of care. But on top of that, they're going to, if they get treated for care, for pain, they're going to go back to the same things that made them get injured in the first place. So it's kind of a disincentive to go get treatment because there it is again, and they know it, everybody knows it. So why, why are you going to take yourself away from your work, which is how you make your money, to go get treated when you're going to come back and, and experience the same thing again? So what, what are you going to do? It's kind of a, a trap. Well, that really does sound like a tough situation. So if fishermen are finding it hard to get medical interventions to pain, what are they doing in the meantime to mitigate the injuries? Well, Scott will remind us here that all injuries and pain are unique. So we're trying to avoid painting with too big of a brush. But from his observations, Scott sees fishermen trying to cope by using the pain management tools that are most available to them. I do know that in talking to people, at the very least, a lot of them are taking pain medication that they get over the counter. It's not unusual 
to to see people taking ibuprofen, for example, in large quantities almost every day, just to keep themselves going. And that is rational, right? For the reasons that, that I was just explaining, that you have to keep going and those exposures are still there. And so you take painkillers to help ease that situation. In talking about toughing out pain, Scott brought up something we've heard in past episodes, this idea of fishing being a survivor's industry. It's difficult work. It requires mental and physical strength. And fishermen are known for and maybe have a, even a culture of toughing out that pain in response to hardship. There is a survivor's mentality at work in the fisherman's mind. And I would say it's not just fishermen, but other people who do this kind of really intense manual labor like construction workers, your work depends on your strength and your physical abilities. With fishermen, obviously, is a lot more than that because to be a skilled fisherman is an incredible amount of uh, knowledge and experience that goes into that as well. It's not just physical. But at the same time, it is. It is physical, very physical work. And you have to maintain your strength. So the ability to do your work requires your mind to be able to overcome all these amazing, like really intense challenges that we're talking about, not the least of which are these physical challenges, right? So you you build up a resistance in your mind to let your mind go into anything that identifies a weakness in your own identity. Like you don't want to admit that you're on the verge of destruction, for example. I mean, that's putting it in an extreme, but it's it's better for you to think of yourself as indestructible because it allows you to get up and do these challenging things every day in the middle of the dark hours of the morning, which is very important. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. So, But at the same time, that survival skill or that survival mentality is also helping you to, de- to deny the, the realities of your limit, limitations and, you know, the difference between what you're actually capable of and what you're trying to do that's in excess of it. You know, I really like how Scott put that, Hannah, but in an industry where people are doing what it takes to survive or endure their physical pain, what happens when the over-the-counter stuff just isn't cutting it anymore? That is a very good question, and it can lead people to seek out stronger, more effective pain relief. The better pain relievers are the opioids, and and they've become very commonly prescribed to people for chronic pain with good reason, because they work. I don't know if you've ever tried one. I try to stay away from them because they work so well. They're shockingly good at, at preventing pain. So there are a lot of different slices of research looking at how opioid pain prescriptions from a doctor can put individuals on a pathway where they have they start taking the the pain medicine and you know depending on the the amount of it and in the in the amount of pain it's possible there is a proportion of people who are going to become addicted to you know, to make a long story short, and then seek those pain medications either through continued prescriptions or or illicitly. And this is where pain management can get tricky and sometimes evolve into a substance use disorder. 
A substance use disorder can be thought of as an irresistible craving for that substance, out of control and compulsive use of the substance, and continued use of it despite repeated harmful consequences. Opioids, which Scott just mentioned, are a particular class of drug that are sometimes prescribed for pain and that have been increasingly the focus of much social commentary and pushes for regulatory reform. These drugs can include codeine, oxycodone, and morphine, and can be highly addictive because they activate powerful reward centers in your brain. A note to our listeners here that the next few minutes are going to discuss some issues of accidental death and suicide related to opioid use. It can happen that there is an initial acute injury, for example, where you you start getting treated through opioid pain medications and find them a solution to managing chronic pain. And through the process of taking care of yourself that way, become addicted. And there's a downward spiral there that can end up in accidental death or worse. You know, not that there's anything worse than death, but uh, when people are confronted with things that, you know, like the need to continue under all these pressures and having no apparent help, you know, you're challenged to get any kind of other treatment or even take a day off to talk to somebody, and then suicide can be a possible escape. Scott describes these types of deaths, as well as liver disease related to alcohol use, as deaths of despair. First of all, the idea of a death of despair is something as like a diagnosis or a, or a, a concept, a working concept, is, is very recent, but it's very real. And, and it turns out that there were a couple of researchers who personally wanted to look into the proportions of like back injuries in the population and then started looking at that and made this discovery that there's this huge sector of, of people who are dying of these diseases that are recognized suicide and liver disease, which is associated with alcohol, basically, like cirrhosis of the liver. You know, people get that almost entirely from just excessive drinking throughout the course of your life. And that's thought of as a kind of a self-destructive thing. You know, it's, it's drinking in the extreme. And then, you know, the opioid overdoses has kind of accelerated this phenomenon and the rise in, in these things uh, began about the year 2000. So, so there's a couple of things that are happening there. One is just the recognition of it happening. These deaths of despair have been observed to be on a disproportionate rise for middle-aged white non-Hispanic people and seem even more likely to affect people living in rural areas with lower levels of formal education and men in general. The diseases of despair are so strongly affecting that group of people that you're starting to see what had been an improvement in the quality of life and the outcomes of life reversed, which is the kind of effect that you really only see in like when wars happen. It's just, it's a huge effect. (laughs) 
So while we know that earnest efforts to manage job-related pain can lead to substance use disorders and sometimes these deaths of despair, I also wondered what other factors might contribute to these problems. Scott says that in his research, he was able to see a few different trends. What I found with my research was that I looked at death certificates from the years of from 2000 to 2015 or 2014, actually, 15 years. That was the first 15 years that are recognized in the general population of this opioid crisis. And I looked at the death certificates in the two biggest fishing ports in Massachusetts, Gloucester and New Bedford, and compared all of the deaths to the male population, just basically said, yes, there's a few females, but we're just not going to look at them. There aren't enough. Just for statistical purposes, just the males comparing the fishermen to the non-fishermen and found that fishermen were proportionately more than twice as likely to die of a disease of despair than non-fishermen. One of the hazards of doing a podcast via Zoom is that sometimes we lose a little audio quality. If you couldn't quite make that out, Scott said that his work found that fishermen in his study area appeared more than twice as likely to die of a disease of despair than non-fishermen. Everything else basically is the same because they're all from the same place. So the, the socioeconomic background is basically, you know, they go to the same schools, you go have the same health care providers, you have the same political influences and so on and so forth. The only difference is you have fishermen here and you have non-fishermen over here. So there's something there. There's something happening. So the question you're asking is what what is happening? Why is it? And so I'm saying that one of the reasons is this possible, you know, pathway. And 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 I'm not just imagining it. You can see in the newspaper there are stories where someone will die and there's too many reports in the paper, but it happens. And the story goes that, you know, originally as far as they understand it from families or friends that this person was perfectly fine until they got injured and then they started taking opioids. So I think that there's something to this. What Scott describes here is a sort of pipeline of pain management to substance use disorders, to deaths of despair. And this pipeline appears to be affecting fishermen at a greater rate than the non-fishing population. If this correlation of factors is right, then the higher risk of injury inherent to the commercial fishing industry may be costing fishermen much more than just aches and pains. You know, and it strikes me too that some of this may tie back to our last episode where we learned about moral injury and how a lack of institutional support for fisheries and fishermen can compound the already difficult job of fishing. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. And Scott actually also identified that link. He described the mindset he has seen in fishermen who are dealing with that as a sort of siege mentality. There's a very serious and deeply held mentality, a siege mentality, um, just to put a name on it, where you feel like as a fisherman, there's either fishermen or non-fishermen and, and people who aren't in fishing aren't on your side. That's, and that's putting it mildly. And, and there's a lot of reasons for it. And I think they're accurate. I think that this, it's a very, you know, essentially a healthy perspective on the world that, that you understand 
that there are greater economic forces acting on the, on the world that you're trying to survive in that are very powerful and very much not in your favor. So I'm sure that fishermen can name those things better than I can. So with all of this in mind, does Scott have suggestions for how fishermen or perhaps society more broadly can deal with these difficult issues of pain and despair? Thankfully he does. And I'll let him set us up from here. I would say that there's two kind of categories of, of ways that our society as a whole can deal with this overwhelming challenge of these diseases of despair in commercial fishing. That first category is about what the public can be doing to support fishermen. In past episodes, we've heard experts and fishermen talk about needing more support from the consumer in particular, particularly in how we buy and value seafood. But Scott's adding a new dimension to that here by talking about the people who work with fishermen in a professional capacity. So you're asking me, what can people who aren't fishing do to help people that are fishing? And I'm thinking primarily of healthcare providers and, and researchers and scientists who do have roles to play, you know, structure, structurally. So they're in place to, to do something that has an impact on the fishing industry. If you're working at a healthcare clinic, for example, in a fishing port, you should understand much better the challenges that fish have been faced, not just to be sympathetic, but to understand how your care could better reach them or how, how that you can think of getting your knowledge, whatever care you provide, into the hands of fishermen more directly and, you know, on a practical level. And also to not just simply expect that the only thing that you can do is to subscribe pain relievers, which is effective, but there's a huge downside to it. And I I just want to say that there are people that know this and have done some really great work in that direction. And I commend them. And I know that fishermen appreciate it. Scott argues that these considerations of care go beyond individual caregivers and to the institutional level. And that's not just individual care providers. That's the, with institutions. Like th- there should be a better recognition on an institutional level. So let's say if you're a hospital administrator, what have you done to understand how your institution is caring for fishermen? And, and since you're, you're caring for fishermen who are significantly impaired and seeking care, you owe it to the community that you're making money from to understand how to improve your care with respect to what fishermen think you should do. <laughs> and they, they will have something to say. They just need a chance to say it. Scott's second category of change focuses on what fishermen can do to help themselves and each other. Scott argues that the best way to avoid the pain pipeline that we've talked about here today is to avoid injury in the first place. And that means acknowledging as an industry the challenges that fishermen face and thinking collectively about ways to avoid getting hurt. Advancing the kind of collective knowledge about how work gets done could could actually build a foundation for a better ability for for any individual to to look at the things 
in their immediate environment that they do have control over and think about ways to reduce risk. In wrapping up, I want to share one last point that Scott raised in our conversation. He talked about how fishing injuries, deaths, and the general risk of the industry is measured and how the current methods may be missing out on these deaths of despair and the true cost of these livelihoods to fishermen and their communities. In occupational health, there there is a definition of work-related deaths or work-related injuries, and there's a process for collecting the data, and, and there are data sets. So when I did my research on death certificates, I had to go and organize the data in order to make the analysis. The data was accessible and, and electronic, and I got it through the Massachusetts Department of Public Health whose data was collected from the local um, death certificates in, in those cities. But the, the reportable injuries that go to, you know, like the Bureau of Labor Statistics are defined such that an injury has to happen in the work environment. And so all of the findings that I made that clearly pointed to an effect of commercial fishing on mortality is nothing that you would find in the Bureau of Labor Statistics where the experts go to learn about what kinds of things they should do to try to, to help, you know, change the conditions that would, um, you know, reduce risk for mortality. And that's a very important, very simple thing. Just make the definition of work-related different. Make it more inclusive so that you can really understand. And, and with fishing, it's... It, it, it's very, very important because fishing is really more than just a job. It's a whole entire lifestyle, if you will. And it's also in, it's, it's a community. So it's been a bit of a somber episode today. Hannah, what takeaways do you have? You know, I, I'd heard the phrase deaths of despair before, but I think today I, I really learned what that means and that these are deaths related to suicide, drug-related overdoses, and liver disease that's related to alcohol. Mm. Yeah, and, and I was struck too by what Scott described as the siege mentality and how difficult the fishing industry becomes for fishermen when they feel that they're taking pressure from all sides. As a reminder to our listeners, this episode was just part one of our discussions on the complicated nature of dealing with pain in the commercial fishing industry. Please join us again next time for part two, where we hear about these issues from the point of view of an Alaskan fisherman turned priest. Thanks for joining us today. In this episode, you heard from Scott Fulmer, an ergonomics project manager at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Fishing Forward is a production of the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety and Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. We love to hear your feedback. You can share your thoughts with us via email at fishing at necenter.org. That's fishing at necenter.org. Or you can leave us a voicemail by calling 607-221-4448. And of course, you can also visit us on the Fishing Forward podcast webpage at www.coastalroots.org forward slash fishing forward pod. 
that we do our best to bring you accurate information and lived experiences in this podcast. Please remember that all of the health-related information presented here is the opinion of the interviewees, and it should not be interpreted as licensed medical advice. As always, talk to your physician about your own health needs and circumstances. Fishing Forward is funded by the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety. We also receive support from the Alaska Marine Safety Education Association, Oregon State University, the Pacific Northwest Agricultural Safety and Health Center, Fishing Partnership Support Services, the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, the NORA Agriculture, Forestry and Fishing Council, the Southwest Center for Agricultural Health, Injury Prevention and Education, and the Local Catch Network. Stay sailing.